So it shows that these elongated skulls literally found around the world must have been from a human-like race of giants because 30% larger skull, 30% larger body, it just goes uh, to show. And you can see in that distribution map, it's truly a worldwide phenomenon where these were found. So it's not a one-off, it's a, it's a many-off. And here's the other thing, Michael, these bones are still continued to be found. When I was down in South America four years ago, we went into some some museums uh, and they would display these elongated skulls. They just, hey, this is part of our heritage. These They considered them royalty and they were buried in royal tombs. And you can see displays with these elongated skulls. They're not trying to hide them. In fact, in Paracas, Peru is the best collection of all. And uh, Brian Forrester, he lives down there and he knows where the graveyard was and he finds some of the the implements and he's even done some dna studies that show that they had a mother's human dna but an unknown father so that's quite interesting and that kind of corresponds with what the bible says is that these men of renown found the earth women attractive and they mated with them so this seems to be perhaps how the nephilim were uh a species of the Anunnaki, the offspring of these giants. You're listening to Exopolitics Today with Dr. Michael Sala, your source for the uncensored truth regarding the human, extraterrestrial, global, and political agenda. Click the like button and subscribe to this channel. And now, here's Dr. Michael Sala. Well, it's my great pleasure to welcome Brad Olson back to Exopolitics today. Welcome, Brad. Hey, Michael. It's great to be back on Exopolitics today. Well, I know you've done quite a lot of uh, research on various topics for your um, Beyond Esoteric uh, book and the, the series. And I know you're a book publisher and a researcher and done a lot of field work. And, and you've accumulated a lot of knowledge on esoteric topics. And one of those is giants. So how did you get interested in the whole giants topic? Well, it's not just that I'm a really tall guy, because when I got into it, I found that they're way, way, way taller than my six foot nine frame. But they're seven, eight, even 10 and 12 feet tall. Sometimes the bigger they are, the older they are. But I really became interested in this subject uh, when I was a kid, because where I grew up in northwestern Illinois, not far away are all these really beautiful glacier-carved lakes in southern Wisconsin. And one of them is called Lake Delavan. And there was a dig there uh, about 100 years ago where they discovered all these giants. And it turns out there are effigy mounds in southern Wisconsin near the shore of some of these lakes. And that's the famous dig there, which was done by professors of Beloit College. I mean, they did everything textbook, the way archaeology should be done. And if you go to the uh, headline of the Wisconsin newspaper, they were announcing it as this incredible find of giants. And like so many cases of professional archaeological digs, 
you have the uh, Smithsonian coming in right after the announcement goes over the wire. And here, in this case, the New York Times is picking it up. And the Smithsonian shows up. They're like Johnny on the spot, showing their FBI badges. Hey, well, we're taking over here. We outrank you guys. And as in most cases, those archaeologists would have to defer to the Smithsonian and say, well, but please uh, keep us abreast of your findings. And almost routinely, they would go back to the Smithsonian and say, well, what else did you find? What what are uh, what are some cultural traits of these giants that we are starting to discover? And routinely, they'd say, we don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> there are no giant bones here. And they've denied it ever since. So it is what we call Smithsonian Gate in this country, where these out-of-place artifacts, upas, or giant bones just go missing. They do not want to deal with the subject. And so that has just stoked my interest even more and got me involved in, in giving talks on the giants at conferences and having a chapter in Beyond Esoteric called Suppressed Human Origins, because they lived on this earth just as we did in prehistoric times. And there's a big story that's not being told about who and what these giants were. Well, I've, I've heard again and again that the Smithsonian does play this role in, in, in covering up a lot of topics. So that raises the question, do you think the Smithsonian was uh, set up? I mean, it, it was uh, a grant from, the, I guess, the Smithson family that was set up deliberately to play this role of, of kind of like, on, on the one hand, it's got a useful cover of being a philanthropic organisation that sponsors uh, research into archaeology and esoteric topics. But on the other hand, it kind of monopolizes the flow of information and can, and and uh, I think Michael Cremo calls it knowledge filtration that they can just pluck things out very easily uh, that they don't want to be part of the mainstream narrative and they do do that and I've met Michael Cremo at a couple conferences and uh he does a ton it is well upas that are um found and then lost all around the world. So why do they do it? That, that's, that's the age old question. And it really comes down to when the Smithsonian Institute was formed, that we were going through the colonization of North America and this notion of manifest destiny, that it's, it's our right to take the land and keep going westward and Indians were more of a nuisance than anything. So their culture was largely eviscerated. And when it came to the giant bones, they were looked at originally as, and there's many headlines uh, from the 19th century that say giant Indian bones found. That was a common theme was to call them Indian bones because they didn't know otherwise before they <laughs> before they went missing. But because it was this out of place artifact, because it didn't fit with uh, the normal narrative, nor with the religious institutions. Let's also keep in mind that people were very religious back then. And to have giants uh, in America, well, it kind of upset the apple cart. And I don't think religious leaders liked it so much as well. But 
then you have giants in the Bible and, and the Nephilim and uh, all these other references to giants, but they didn't like to find them here in America. And of course, giants have been found around the world, especially these ones with the elongated skulls. And uh, it's not just a one-off tribe of really tall and really elongated skull humans that they're not quite human at all. In fact, they're very uh, different from human skulls in so much that they don't have the uh, central suture down the middle of the skull. Uh, look at the size in the back of the head, how elongated some of them are. They have 30% larger cranial capacity. That is, uh, it's measured with the little BBs. We used to shoot in our BB guns. You would put the BBs in the cranial uh, capacity and, and get a number for how many BBs you could fit in it. And so they're 30% larger than an average human. So you there are ways to wrap a head and put a board on it. They're the flathead Indians of uh, Idaho did it and other tribes and people around the world do cranial deformation. But what you cannot do when you def when you change the shape of your skull is add extra capacity. That's just impossible. So it shows that these elongated skulls literally found around the world must have been from a human-like race of giants because 30% larger skull, 30% larger body, it just goes uh, to show. And you can see in that distribution map, it's truly a worldwide phenomenon where these were found. So it's not a one-off. It's a, it's a many-off. And here's the other thing, Michael. These bones are still continued to be found. When I was down in South America four years ago, we went into some some museums uh, and they would display these elongated skulls. They just, hey, this is part of our heritage. These They considered them royalty and they were buried in royal tombs. And you can see displays with these elongated skulls. They're not trying to hide them. In fact, in Paracas, Peru is the best collection of all. And uh, Brian Forrester, he lives down there and he knows where the graveyard was and he finds some of the the implements and he's even done some dna studies that show that they had a mother's human dna but an unknown father so that's quite interesting and that kind of corresponds with what the bible says is that these men of renown found the earth women attractive and they mated with them so this seems to be perhaps how the nephilim were uh a species of the Anunnaki, the offspring of these giants. Well, that's a very important topic because I know the book of Genesis talks about the arrival of the fallen, or it talks about the fallen angels and it talks about the Nephilim. And the book of Enoch talks about the fallen angels in great specificity. It outlines that there was 200 of them that landed there on Mount Hermon. And then, then they created all sorts of um, kind of like offspring and spread a lot of forbidden knowledge and, and humanity didn't seem to be kind of quite ready for it. So the you know, Book of Enoch kind of describes this, this war that, that happened between the fallen, the so-called fallen angels. But one of the things that I think really 
is worth emphasizing is that there's re- there's this relationship between you know the these fallen angels which we can take as a as a faction of extraterrestrials i mean that's what they are they're just extraterrestrials and they're fallen because the writers of the bible chose to describe that particular faction of extraterrestrials as somehow bad or evil because they you know they mix interbred with humanity and they shared all of this forbidden knowledge and technology with humanity and so they were regarded as fallen angels in the in the book of enoch uh, but they created the Nephilim, or what's also known as as the giants. So it shows that there's this connection between these extraterrestrials or fallen angels and these giants on Earth. So in a way, to me, I take that, and and there are various sources that describe this. That in a way that the the Nephilim were created as as an avatar body. For the souls of the fallen of the fallen angels or the extraterrestrials to kind of incarnate on Earth, because if you think about it, I mean, you know, the Earth's gravity is is kind of like um, well, the, it supports a certain size human comfortably. It's the, the atmosphere is un, is unique. So extraterrestrials that arrive here, they might find. The Earth's atmosphere kind of really inhospitable, so they they would want to create an avatar for their because they have the technology to do it. They have the technology to create a a hybrid body, and that would be used as an avatar for them. So, and that's my question: Do you think the giants were avatars for the extraterrestrials or the fallen angels? That's a very, very compelling theory, and I would I would agree that there is that kind of uh, reaction with these uh, Nephilim. The the fact that they're fallen angels to me that that always rang that they had fallen out of a UFO or survived a crash or fallen from the sky, and they didn't really know what to call them, but angels. Now we'd call them aliens. But that there, there was this other kind of species living with within us. And just like you can take a horse and a donkey, two separate species, and mate them, and what you get is a mule who is sterile and cannot have children as a mule, perhaps these elongateds were like that, that they saw that the earth women were fair and they mated with them and they were just kind of a one off and one and done and stuck here on earth and maybe couldn't leave. Uh, there's even a name for them that archaeologists have called them Homo capensis. And these are some drawings back from the 19th century. And you can see that is that is nothing like a human. So these, these things have been around for a while. And uh, the great Lloyd Pye, he was traveling around to uh, conferences with the star child skull and that's a reproduction of what it would look like and the skull itself and how much bigger it is than a human skull as well so you have these entities that are human-like but not quite human that are just so much bigger especially with their cranial look and brian forrester has done a lot of uh, reconstructions of what they look like and interestingly enough many of them had red hair they weren't even black-haired like the South Americans or in other parts of the world where it's almost entirely black-haired and brown-eyed people. Now, you don't really know what their eye colors were, 
But if you look at the red haired people of today, that they have multicolored eyes. And, and it's also interesting that where you get the most amount of redheads is in the, the Celtic band from uh, the British Isles and Northern Europe, but spanning down into the Basque region. And this is also the highest incidence of the RH negative blood type. This is also another very fascinating phenomenon uh, that, that the human race has two kind of blood types. And I spoke about this real briefly when we were on a panel at the uh, conference in Orlando that uh, my family is RH negative blood type. And I had an uncle Douglas who died at five days old because his blood interacted with my grandmother who was RH negative blood type, but my grandfather was positive. Uncle Douglas was born RH positive, tainted blood from my grandmother and it killed him. This happens in no other animals. So we have two distinct kind of human species living here concurrently. But if you could show that picture from the uh, the banker in the Basque region, I would propose they still live among us. This is another picture from Brian Forrester. And I asked him if I could use it at, at, at uh, in my conference talk on the giants. He said, sure. Here's a banker. It's interesting. Yeah, he says here, highly mathematical, involved in banking, talking with a woman in front of his computer and she can't keep his eye off his huge head. Look at that thing. I mean, it looks just like some of those uh, images of the skulls that I just showed. Uh, maybe some of them weren't quite mules. They were more uh, human than uh, not, and they were able to keep their genome going. Sort of the same way that we could look at uh, hair color or eye color can move uh, through generations. It doesn't always have to be, uh, I'm blonde hair, blue eyes, I'm gonna have a blonde hair, blue eyed kid. I could have a black haired kid with uh, brown eyes, but then that kid or a grandchild could have blonde hair, blue eyes again. So it, it, it can skip generations and it could come back in a different uh, iteration, just in the same way that they say the Neanderthal genes are still in rotation in all the human races because way back when there was some interbreeding there too. So really uh, the big picture here, Michael, is we are just an amalgamation of all these different genome types, some from proto-humans who are RH positive. In fact, that's what it means. RH is rhesus monkey, directly tracing the genetics to the great apes and these proto-humans coming up. But then you have this explosion of homo sapiens on the planet. And this is what I find super fascinating because the, the founder of the DNA, his name is Francis Crick. He said the odds of homo sapiens just exploding on the scene as advanced as we are with pineal gland and these uh, fingers that are so uh, ambidextrous and we can do so many things with our brain and so much more advanced than the Neanderthal or Homo erectus were, he akined it to going to a garage sale and a whole 747 airplane is disassembled and you and I being able to put it back together, which is next to impossible. So he was saying that the Homo sapien genome is next to impossible unless you talk about some interbreeding and perhaps... Uh, genetic tinkering. And this is the whole uh, Zachariah Sitchin 
that we're all um, a product of Enlil and Anki and Sun Marduk, and they were the uh, progenitors of modern Homo sapien. And that would correspond with what Francis Crick is saying is that you don't have this kind of massive leap in the ability of Homo sapiens as quickly as it came unless you can factor in another factor such as interbreeding or um, genetic tinkering. Yeah, when we're talking about that topic of genetic tinkering and different extraterrestrials, you know, we're talking about something that goes back far into human history. I mean, millions of years even. And that's, this is something worth emphasizing because I know a lot of people talk about the Anunnaki, uh, but the according to the Sumerian texts, the Anunnaki arrived 450,000 years ago. But prior to that, there were other genetic experiments, other arrivals, other civilizations. Right. And so so maybe these giants are kind of like a, a leftover from these very ancient civilizations and the Anunnaki kind of came in and, and brought in their own, kind of uh, put their own mark on it. But I wanted to kind of segue into this diagram you shared with me about the uh, different size giants. And I just wanted to kind of like get you to kind of like just to give people a, an idea of what we're talking about here. I mean, you've got different heights. Um, so, you know, maybe just talk about some of these guys. Um, you know, Max, Maximilian Thrax, the Roman emperor and Goliath. Yeah, you want to talk about those guys and uh, and Og, you know, talk about yeah. them. Yeah, and you can see that uh, the largest ones were all finds that were uh, uncovered. So they had bone samples and they were able to compute these uh, heights in inches here or in feet, 26, 36 feet tall. And these guys are massive. You can see present day man on the left there. And uh, then you have those in the Bible, such as Goliath, who was uh, slain by uh, David in the famous battle with a slingshot, hit him right between the eyes. And then King Og of Bashan, who is also featured in the Bible from 1400 BC. Uh, and then uh, even a, a Caesar of Rome, Maximinus uh, Thrax, Caesar of Rome, even into more modern time, 235 to 238 AD. So not even uh, 2,000 years old, they were almost nine feet tall. Now, just, just to give uh, the listeners perspective, the tallest known man in the world was Robert Waldo. And he was about the size of Maximinus, slightly taller, just under nine feet. And it was known that he had a pituitary gland that just kept going into overdrive and made him grow and keep growing. And he was still growing the day he died. He just got so big. It was almost like uh, he became a dinosaur of a human and, and gravity was just too much for him. But it, in, in some of these larger ones, they go back so far that it could be that there was a different gravity on the earth in those days. And you, and you kind of think, Baranosaurus and some of these larger dinosaurs, how were they able to live as big as they were with the gravity that we have today? And I would propose that the gravity field was less than it is today, 
to allow them to exist. And when I was a kid, I'd go to uh, the Field Museum in Chicago. And right when you walk into the rotunda, there's a life-size skeleton of Tyrannosaurus Rex. It's quite impressive when you see it face to face. And I sent you another photo of a, a giant in Ecuador. You go to this museum in Ecuador, first thing you see in the rotunda is one of the giants uh, as a skeleton. And you can see how literally ginormous this thing is. But because it didn't fit the narrative and because uh, manifest destiny in this country, they didn't want to have to explain this. They didn't want to have to rewrite the history go to the theologians and have them explain it in religious terms. And this stuff just got swept under the rug. And uh, it's quite a shame because it's part of our ancient history. And because it's a matter that's only known to a select few, therefore it's an esoteric subject and I have to cover it in my esoteric book in the suppressed human history chapter. Well, I'm, I'm glad you do cover it in your in your book. Definitely, um, you know, beyond esoteric, I think uh, you got a chapter on the giants in there, as I recall. Sure do. Definitely uh, worth uh, getting a copy of that. So I recommend people to do that. Now, this diagram, I just want to go back to it, to this showing the different size giants. Now, I mean, we, we see the size of the normal human at, at the at the far left. And, uh, I mean, these giants, I mean, it's quite clear that this is not a product of natural selection, that there's not some kind of um, natural process uh, in any way related to Darwinian uh, theory of evolution, that this is clearly an example of extraterrestrials creating these giants. And I think that they created them um, as giants, and you know, for, for a couple of reasons. One, a giant that would be a suitable host for a suitable avatar for the star seed, or because they could transfer the consciousness from the extraterrestrial on the spacecraft, and that spacecraft could park itself on Earth or in orbit, and, and they go into a stasis chamber, and their consciousness transfers into one of these giants that have been genetically created, but they were genetically created of course, with superior intelligence, with the elongated skulls, but also with that incredible height. You know, if you're a normal human, six foot, and you meet someone that's you know, over 20 feet high, I mean, I mean that, that, would, be, that would be, you know, vital. Well, uh, you, you would not know how to react to something like that. I, I think you would have to react in a, in a way of awe. And I think they did this deliberately because they wanted to inculcate the human consciousness with the idea of these gods, these uh, god kings, these giants. Want to address that? Yeah, absolutely. And why do you think Goliath, and it says on the top there, that he was just, he had three brothers as big as he, I would say clearly of a, a different lineage than Homo sapien. You can just compare Goliath there to present day man and see what David was up against. Uh, and surely they would be recruited to be these uh, the warrior class. And in fact, Michael, you find a lot of historic photos, even out in Asia and Tibet, the first uh, Westerners going out there meeting the guards, the guardian class, the, the people who were uh, giants and 
were defending the kingdom or the the king's own personal guard are just massive. And that's why this is really a worldwide phenomenon, even though these photo, uh, these skeletal remains are mostly from Europe or around the Mediterranean area. It's truly a worldwide phenomenon. And therefore, we can say that they came from somewhere else uh, and, and had some kind of interaction or perhaps ruling over the uh, the minions. And a lot of the uh, hieroglyphics representations of giants from Egypt show them in this kind of proportion, two or three or five times larger than a normal human. And in a lot of times, those Egyptian hieroglyphs, uh, they weren't exaggerating so much. They were just showing it the way it was. And we could show that one of the Egyptians on the boat. Yeah, they made the little puny humans row the boats and the giants were uh, the ones do, doing the pleasure cruise. And in other hieroglyphs, they're shown as uh, the pharaohs with a lot of the humans putting on their decorations and tending to their uh, their needs. And it, it, it's not just to say that the pharaohs wanted to aggrandize themselves, but they wanted to show that they were different. And if you look at the uh, on uh, Akhenaten and his wife Nefertiti, and most especially their daughters, they're all elongated skulls. And you find those imagery right there in the Cairo Museum. So in some cases, you'll see that they're represented as much bigger with elongated skulls, and they're proud of that fact. Uh, and the humans are usually just seen as being their serpents and cleaning their feet or rowing their boats and doing all the chores. Uh, so the giants have a major role in our prehistory, yet isn't it interesting that they've mostly just been written right out and nobody really wants to talk about it so much? Yeah, well, definitely there is this massive cover-up and it's being orchestrated at, at the highest level. And, and they don't want us to know about these um, giants clearly. I mean, the Smithsonian Institution and um, there's organisations such as the, the Freemasons that apparently also have this goal of monopolising esoteric knowledge. And I, I know from reading the, the Radu Cinema book series, uh, the Transylvania uh, series of books, that the Freemasons played this role of every time there's a kind of breakthrough in scientific knowledge, that their people go in there and they use their connections to get high-level access and to kind of keep it all secret and to control it and extract whatever benefits uh, for themselves. So, yeah, the, the Freemasons, what, what do you think of them and their role in this whole cover-up of this uh, forbidden knowledge? And, and we know that they're a, a secret society. What's the nature of a secret society to keep secrets? And I'm glad you brought up the Freemasons, Michael, because out here in the West Coast, there have been a lot of findings of giants, not only out on the uh, Channel Islands, hundreds of them found. Some of them underneath a uh, awning where they were roasting baby or uh, their, their midget, mammoths so this this could only have occurred in the last ice age 
also up in northern Nevada was at a, a giant freshwater lake. It's where I I've just uh, relocated next year to a ranch in uh, northwestern Nevada is in the basin of Lake Lahotian, this giant freshwater lake with caves all around it that they found these redheaded giants. They were so unusual because they were mummified much in the same manner as Egyptian mummification, but they had created their own implements, their own tools, their own uh, hunting gear, even duck decoys that were so amazingly unique to them. They have to call them by their own name. And it's the Lovelock culture named after the biggest cave called Lovelock Cave, just outside of Lovelock, Nevada, where they found dozens of these mummified red haired giants. But the Masons come into the picture in the 19th century when they're digging them up, actually in 1933. So this would be the 20th century. And they were known to have taken them out. And I even went, I go to all the museums in Nevada trying to find any uh, remnants of the giants. And they usually just laugh me out. Oh, you're one of those guys, huh? But there are records of these giants being taken to Masonic halls, just in the same way that Geronimo, the famous Native American warrior, his body, his skull was dug up and it's reported to still be at Skull and Bones in Yale. So these secret societies have a fascination with these uh with the with these giants and these mummies that were found in the caves and they it's it's almost like a death cult and you see this in primitive cultures around the world for example in 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 uh, Hawaii which I'm sure you know with with the uh heiau temples and uh the whole concept of mana that you could steal the chief's energy once you killed him and the Native Americans would wear the scalps of their enemies to get the mana of these uh, fallen warriors. So it, it's kind of a, a reoccurring theme around the world that they're trying to, to capture the energy or the essence of these giants after they've lived and uh, keep them in their close quarters behind lock and key in many cases. And you can't, I've not been able to uh, get close to them. Now, my colleague and friend, David Hatcher Childress, who's in a lot of the uh, ancient alien shows, he's tracked a few down and he has confirmed to me that uh, he knows that the, the Masons have collected some of these giant skulls. And he wrote about them in his uh, Lost Cities of North America book, if anybody wants to read the finer print and get some of the details on that. And he kind of set me off on this uh, adventure to try to locate them some myself. Uh, and out on the Channel Islands here in California, th they have found some new bones. Uh, but as soon as you make an announcement or try to collect any kind of resources for an archaeological dig, they're still coming in and, and quashing the story. They will not let it go. So I'm not sure how we're ever going to get a real pure dig that can be announced to the world. It's still a cover up that goes on to this day, which is so confounding that uh, that this should be so um, hard for people to wrap their head around that, that these giants could have walked the earth uh, a long time ago. Or maybe it's to cover that they're still alive today. And Michael, I know in your research with Antarctica and both of us uh, very 
familiar with the topic. I went down there four years ago on a sailboat and collecting all the information I can. And your research on the arcs down in Antarctica and JP's information that they're all over the world. Well, what do you know? They're built for giants. They're built for ginormous humans. And these are supposedly what are waking up in these stasis chambers. So perhaps there's a cover-up because there is still an ongoing story of them existing even alive here on Earth today. Yeah, there's uh, that phenomenon of these uh, space arcs that are being discovered or being revealed by, by various sources, uh, JP being one of them, and that they report uh, JP, uh, Jean-Charles Moyen, Elena Danan report seeing these very large sarcophagi or these stasis chambers where they saw giants in them. And uh, they're estimated to be around 10 feet or more in size. And so that, and these are described as the crew for those giant space arcs that can take hundreds of thousands of people or tens of thousands at the very very least, that, the, that these are operational craft and that the crew are sleeping in these stasis chambers, but that their consciousness has been transferred into an ordinary human body and they're living as starseeds and they at some point presumably will awaken. So, yeah, so that's going to be really quite something when these uh, space arcs suddenly start activating and start popping up and the crew start appearing in their original avatar bodies as these giants. So someone's got to know that they're there. <laughs> I would say that those same someone are probably also part of this cover-up to just erase the history of anything giant-related. And another piece of the puzzle was what Alex Collier said when asked the question, who owns the earth? Alex was doing a Q&A at uh, the Mount Shasta Summer Conference last summer, and he gave the very succinct answer, the Anunnaki. So according to him, they're still around and they're still running the show. And maybe the uh, people that we think are running the world, the Rothschilds or Rockefellers, are more like the uh, colonels and majors in the hierarchy here. And the real generals are these off-planet types that are protecting their own, these uh, stasis chambers. And isn't it interesting that they're all built for giants? Not you and me. Even though I'm a tall guy, uh, they're way bigger than me. And uh, it seems that they're the real rulers uh, of this planet Earth. And why so many things just don't make any sense why the, the narrative gets steered towards the way they want us to think, not based on the evidence that we find here in the case of the giants. Well, I know that in the ancient world, the topic of giants was very well known and it's all over the, the artwork. Sure. And, and there's one uh, Sumerian or Akkadian, uh, uh, I guess, uh, cuneiform tablet that shows the god king Shamash, mm -hmm. uh, that's the Akkadian name for the, 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 the sun god. And I think his name in, um, in Sumerian was uh, actually Yutu. I think it was Yutu in Sumerian. But there you see uh, the size of Shamash. 
are compared to the king so that the first midget on the left is is a is a normal sized king of earth uh oh sorry of that of that era in uh, ancient uh, Sumeria and behind him are, are two minor gods and and they're kind of you can see that they're a little bit larger but mm -hmm. Shamesh must be about 25 feet tall in comparison to these other guys and I I think maybe this this was the the whole hierarchy thing that you have a gradation in terms of you know the giant the biggest of the giants were avatars for the Anunnaki leaders or these uh, senior extraterrestrials and the kind of smaller giants the ones that are around 10 feet or whatever that they are kind of like avatars for lesser Anunnaki or, or lesser extraterrestrial beings well, so yeah I thought that that image of Shamash the sun god tells a lot about the hierarchy it sure does and if you could pop it up one more time there's another detail and that is the two animals underneath the giant seat which uh, appear to be what lions would you think some kind of animals you can see the uh, or perhaps uh, a hoofed animal but they are in accordance to the size of the people on the left, not the size of the giant. And there's another very famous uh, portrait of Gilgamesh, and he's holding a lion in one arm like it's a house cat. And you can clearly see it's a full-grown lion, which are about as big as humans. So uh, that that's a good tell that the artist who represented here was doing the exact sizing because those animals are in relation to the other three, not to the giant king there, who must be about 15, 20 feet tall. If you look at his kneecap comes up to their shoulders. So clearly a, a, a giant and wearing a head headgear, which is also common with a lot of the pharaohs that they, they tried to disguise their elongated heads. It wasn't until Akhenaten and Nefertiti who portrayed themselves in the realism of how they really looked, which was not the case in ancient Egyptian art. It was very stiff and they were doing uh, positions that humans don't normally pose in or look like. But when this kingdom, which they worshipped one god, one monotheistic god, I mean, he really upset the apple cart in Egypt in that middle kingdom dynasty so much so that after he passed the priests of uh the next generation did all they could to erase Akhenaten and Nefertiti and it's probably why his nephew King Tut had a tomb that wasn't raided they just didn't know about it and they were just overlooked because they did so much to try to extinguish that knowledge of Akhenaten and uh, his family. So once again, this editing of history uh, has been going on for quite a long time, since the time of uh, Akhenaten after his reign. They did not want people to worship him or Aten, the sun god, and let's just go back to our pantheon of gods in Egypt and keep things the way they were. So uh, I would propose same thing with Sumeria, that these glyphs and these carvings had they not just been buried and lost to the sands of time and only found in, in recent times, we wouldn't know about those Sumerian 
giants either. But a lot of this stuff is still coming out and uh, new findings uh, will, I hope, someday really blow this open so people would understand that uh, these giants live concurrently with, uh, with ancient humans. Okay, so this is a, a very interesting kind of topic is that while the giants were such an integral part of the ancient world in terms of their, their religion, their, their worship, I mean, these giants were either gods, considered gods themselves, or they were considered kind of like protectors of the gods or workers or subservient to the gods. And then at the bottom end of the hierarchy were you know mere mortals that just kind of like followed that were part of that hierarchy and, and followed whatever was expected of them according to that social strata. But of course, all of that kind of like uh, began to disappear with the spread of monotheism. And uh, now, I mean, the whole topic of giants has been buried. So one question, and this is a controversial one, is that, you know, the gods that are depicted in monotheism, uh, whether it's Yahweh, whether it's Allah, are these actual supreme entities as the tradition, as the, you know, those religious systems believe, or are these a rival group of extraterrestrials, such as the draconians or the reptilians that don't want the world to know about these human giants who are kind of like avatars or affiliated with a rival group of extraterrestrials, the Anunnaki and the Galactic Federation and so forth. Mm. Which would correspond with what Alex is saying, that the true owners of the earth, or at least they consider themselves the owner, are these Anunnaki. So the story is not over yet, that it's still an ongoing tale and, of course, has its roots in very ancient times. And, of course, we all have heard the tale that the planet X or Nibiru is on this very elongated orbit around Earth. And every time it comes through our solar system, the near planet solar system, it's so big and it causes such a disruption. It might trigger pole shifts. And that's why another name for it is the nemesis, that when it appears, uh, the Anunnaki are in close proximity to the Earth again and perhaps um, working to get more of the uh, gold. So the story that uh, Zachariah Shitchin writes about in his Sumerian texts, interpreting them, saying that they were here to collect the gold in South Africa. And indeed, as Michael Tellinger has pointed out, there are hundreds of ancient gold mines down there and all kind of old civilization ruins dotting the landscape to this day so that they were coming here to mine the gold and they needed a slave race. They wanted humans to be smart enough to take orders, but dumb enough not to uh, call them out and say, well, who are you? Oh, just call us your Lord. Just call us God. Just call us your entity. And that has passed on to this age. Isn't it interesting? We still call uh, people that own our house, a landlord. And these names, these titles with uh, nobility and the royalty, they still last. So there, there's many clues that these giants had once ruled the earth and perhaps still have a stake in it. Well, that brings me to the topic of um, Enki and Enlil. Um, Enki is 
described in various uh, texts as the Anunnaki scientist that created uh, humans. He was the geneticist. He was the commander of Earth and responsible for the Earth experiment, you know, the, the, the genetic experiment creating these different uh, bodies. So I'm just going to put that uh, image up of the different giants that that Enki created those different uh, giants. I mean, th these were they performed various functions. I mean, the bigger ones were avatars for Anunnaki, uh, you know, depending on your your status in Anunnaki society, you would be given one of the one of the kind of like larger avatars. And if you were like in a gigi worker, you, you might be given one of these 20 foot bodies or something like that. Um, and and then then you, you have the, the smaller like the hybrids, like uh, the size of Goliath and Og, that these were also created as kind of like human kings, but they were also created by Enki. And, of course, you have the humans at the very end, uh, but Enki somehow thought that bestowing intelligence on the humans was actually a good idea, that there was something about them, that they carried a potential. And so he nurtured that, and, of course, uh, his half-brother, Enlil, was like, took the attitude that, no, no, these 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 workers, they're to, there to serve us. They just, you know, shut the, you know, just shut up and <laughs> don't create any problems. And actually, that's that's what's described in the, uh, in these texts, the Atrahasis actually, actually describes that the humans were making too much noise for... <laughs> For Enlil and and his and his faction, and so Enlil said, "Well, let's wipe them out, start again, and make and just dumb them down." And Enki didn't want to have anything to do with that, and 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 kind of like uh, so there was that dispute between them. So, yeah, this this Enki Enlil conflict over the degree to which these different humans or these uh, hybrids. Would be stowed with intelligence, and 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 the whole thing of you know two stranded DNA and three stranded DNA and twelve stranded. Apparently, the Enki created humans with this uh, twelve stranded DNA or something called the uh, the Adamic blueprint. What do you kind of like um, have any information about that or want to comment about that? Well, it would correspond with what Francis Crick said, that we have this advanced DNA that seems to be inserted into our genome, along with all these relics in Africa. If you look at any of the evolutionary charts, we're always out of Africa, and then they'll show the proto-humans becoming uh, the first bipedal walking out of the trees, such as Australopithecus africanus, which is a little bit more advanced than a chimpanzee, all the way up to uh, Homo erectus, who then spread out all across Asia, well down into Indonesia and to the Far East, as well as into Europe. And then the Neanderthals. So you have these proto-humans, but they just got absorbed by the uh, very much more intelligent Homo sapiens. And perhaps we're just more articulate, but with a larger brain, although Neanderthals actually have a larger brain than Homo sapien, but because they had such a pronounced uh, muzzle, it's presumed that they weren't able to uh, speak in the same way we did. But if you look at it in in, in terms of uh, 
what uh, Alex Collier said and that the Anunnaki still consider themselves the rightful owner of this planet because they created us and perhaps because they're working with the reptilians and or the other malevolent ETs which were born here on the planet. So therefore they can bypass that prime directive which is other extraterrestrial law that they're not allowed to interfere with a growing emerging civilization such as ours. But if they have the ownership rights, as the Anunnaki perhaps believe they do, that they could wipe us out and start anew, that that maybe we are asking too many questions, that finally we're not uh, accepting this role as the slave race and we want to assert our rightful presence on the surface of this planet. And uh, this is where exopolitics is so vitally important to understand that there are many different agendas that are taking place here on Earth, even right now. And some of this could be these uh, latent giants, too, um, perhaps waking up in the arcs and saying, hey, what are these Earthlings doing all over the place? You got eight billion of them now? We never wanted that. <laughs> so let's see. Some of these uh, agendas are going to take different shapes and different forms, I think, in, in the coming years now. Things are accelerating very quickly, I would say. Yeah, this is a very interesting time in our history because, you know, we're getting more information coming out about the existence of these giants and the stasis chambers that some of these giants are found in. You know, we're hearing stories such as, um, I know Steve Quayle has talked a lot about this, that in Afghanistan, you know, US Special Forces were out, up there really uh, you know, they were doing these seek and destroy missions involving giants up in the hills there. So, um, you know, th th and you look at the history of uh, our history is one where giants are being kind of feared and hunted. I mean, the whole story of David and Goliath and um, and I remember pop culture describes these giants as like evil beings and they would be kind of hunted and destroyed. So, so what is this prejudice against giants? Why is that such a big part of our culture? Well, the, great question, Michael, because with these uh, Lovelock culture giants in Nevada, there was a story from Sarah Winnemucca, and there's also a, a town in Winnemucca, Nevada, where the Paiute tribe was from, and they're still there. Sarah Winnemucca in the 19th century was the first educated woman to write down the family history and all the the legends and lore and they said that the Paiutes waged war against the giants mainly because they were cannibals that they would eat the Paiutes and therefore they had to uh they finally trapped them all in the Lovelock cave buried them with an avalanche and then created fires that put smoke into the cave and and killed them all uh because they were eating them and they were being hunted by these giants. So we know that if you're a cannibal, you can't eat your own kind or you'll start to get really bad uh, degenerative diseases such as mad cow disease. That's because they were feeding these mad cows cow parts. They were cannibals. You can't be a cannibal. You can't eat your own kind. But if you're slightly different or you're not quite human, perhaps that was the workaround. And you mentioned the. Uh, the Kandahar giant, I actually write about it, the account in um, Beyond Esoteric in the Suppressed Human Origins chapter. 
And that giant was massive. It was a 12 footer. Uh, and he had bike and he got it into one of the guys and they just kept shooting him in the eye until they, they killed this Kandahar giant. They had to get a huge net to carry him out. And where did it go to Wright Patterson base and Wright Patterson base in Ohio is where all the crash retrieval and dead aliens go. They have a huge, massive underground base there where they're working, uh, all the time on, on these alien bodies. In fact, there's the great story of uh, Jackie Gleason of the honeymooner fame. He was a big proponent of, of aliens and he was friends with Richard Nixon. And he asked him, Hey, I want to go see a, a alien in a, a test tube or something. And sure enough, Nixon, the way the story goes, took him to write Pat and took him down and they saw an alien in a big test tube, a dead alien. So it's interesting that it all kind of ties in there to right Pat and uh, that these giants are kind of looked at in the same way as uh, a, say a dead alien crash retrieval. Yeah, that is interesting that they would take the body back. And uh, one of the things that kind of like, you know, is, is a concern and, and this is, you know, just a, returning to this kind of cultural prejudice against giants. I mean, we see it in the, right. in the book of Deuteronomy and other Hebrew texts where, I mean, they clearly identify giants as these heathen, as these ungodly beings that need to be exterminated. And so you actually have that in the Hebrew text where they the Israelites were commanded by Yahweh, whoever that is, uh, and uh, my guess would be, you know, who who would be behind orders for genocide? Would it be a, a raw loving God or would it be a, a draconian? Well, <laughs> let people think about that. But they <laughs> commanded the Israelites to go out there and slay all these giant tribes to the last uh, man, woman, and child. And, you know, this kind of, this genocide that's in the, um, in that kind of like, in the historical texts, to what degree is that kind of like part of kind of like Christian evangelism now? You know, I know people like Steve Quayle um, and, and there are quite a, quite a few others that talk about giants as these kind of like heathen, as these fallen angels or the, you know, the byproducts of fallen angels and, and that they need to be kind of like hunted down and controlled or killed. And it's like, well, you know, at, at what point do we need to break free of that cultural prejudice against giants? Mm. Well, look what they do if you join the military. They always have to make the enemy put them in a bad light, give them names. Uh, gooks is what they call the Vietnamese when they're getting ready to go off to the Vietnamese War. Uh, the Krauts were the Germans in World War One. You give them a bad name, so it dehumanizes them. It makes them... Uh, more morally just to kill them. I suppose this is a, a throwback to those uh, kind of times. And the giants were often our enemies, uh, that they were there on the battlefield, just like David killed Goliath uh, against all odds. How's a little guy going to defeat a giant? Well, he hit him with the slingshot and took him down because he got a bullseye shot. So yeah, why are they uh, 
derated in such a way? Well, probably because they posed a threat. And I get it as a tall guy everywhere I go, Michael. It's it's like the the chip on the little guy's shoulder just, just sizing up to me because I'm tall. Uh, so I kind of get that feeling uh, from being a tall guy. That um, yeah, it, we 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 live on a warlike planet. We you just look at our history, all the wars that we've been through, and uh, guys are kind of just hardwired that way. That uh, you see someone don't even know who he is, but yeah, it's big guy or this or that. And just instantly think he's your foe. Uh, of course, we're not like that. And, and I get along with everybody, but uh, yeah, there's still that, that sort of lingering memory, I would say of having to fight and uh, be defensive. That that's part of our reptilian brain too, by the way, the fight or flight mechanism. If you're backed into a corner you got no choice but to fight. So uh, it, we're kind of hardwired for that in many different ways. And perhaps the giants were always these ancient enemies that uh, bedeviled humanity. And if they weren't ruling over us, then they were on the battlefield and uh, a foe to be uh, taken down. Yeah, well, that's the, the big question here, of course, is that, you know, when you look at um books or like the uh, Hebrew texts that describe the giants in this kind of negative light as cannibals and kind of performing heathen practices. I mean, maybe they're talking about, you know, th that one group of, of uh, giants that were like the the warrior class and, and maybe those guys got corrupted. But when, when, the, uh, when the ruling class, the really big giants left the scene uh, around the Great Flood, or, or went into stasis chambers. And, and this is the question that I think is very pertinent now is that according to the information uh, from Elena Danan, uh, she's been told that there are, and, and JP, my source also, is has confirmed that there are these uh, giants, these scientists that are waking up or that are in the process of waking up. And apparently there are seven of these former Anunnaki scientists that are keepers of the knowledge, that they are kind of alchemists, that they have all of this incredible knowledge that they're ready to gift humanity. But how can you, if, if these guys wake up and suddenly emerge into the public arena, how would they, what kind of reception would they have? I mean, if, 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 we, if we make the assumption, and I think it's a fair one, that, that not all giants... Uh, are warriors or cannibals or evil, and some of them are going to be good and benevolent and want to help humanity evolve and and break free of this kind of negative draconian reptilian kind of like a matrix. To to what how how would these guys be um, regarded by the general population? These are seven Anunnaki scientists that that wake up. You know, just say one turns out to be Quetzalcoatl or or Toth or something. These revered figures. I mean, what what would be the impact of, of that? And that's probably why their history has been erased as comprehensively as we've seen and talked about on this show, that perhaps they don't want themselves to be known because it might freak out the humans or evoke these ideas that the uh, giants are back and they're going to take over the world. And maybe they will. Maybe that's their intention. And uh they just want to stay under the radar as best they can until that moment where they feel safe enough to come up because 
do we really know what their intentions might be if they wake up out of these stasis chambers? Maybe they will uh, try to assert their power over the world again and sit on a throne in Jerusalem or something like that to uh, be the kings of the earth, as they, as Alex Collier says they think they are. Well, that's a really fascinating question. It's something I'm going to be looking at in my next uh, webinar where I'm going to look at Enki's return and uh, the awakening giants. And uh, yeah, I'll, I'll invite you. You can you can come along, be a guest to that. And uh, But uh, yeah, I'm going to be talking about those kinds of questions because I think that, that is important because I think uh, you know, our history has been so distorted and, and the topic of giants has been kind of like subverted and twisted and all we know is largely from these uh kind of very prejudicial books like the like the um book of deuteronomy or the other kind of uh, hebrew texts that describe giants in, in this very negative way mm-hmm. but you you know that there's always going to be opposing factions and and apparently this enki faction is a very positive faction that they that Enki did want humanity to be given a high degree of intelligence so that we could do something different, that somehow, you know, what's happened on Earth is not all that different to what's happened on other planets in other in other solar systems, that the Anunnaki have been doing this for millions of years. You know, they're described as eternals. So they've done this many, many times. And apparently one of the things that humanity has and alex collier has talked about it is that we have going back millions of years the genetics of at least 22 different extraterrestrial species and so if you have a a very kind of like gifted scientist like enki seeing this and says hey you know these humans they're special you know this is this this would actually be a crime against science to just dumb them down into some worker class to you know populate the the mines and and do the work for us let's let's endow them with some potentiality and let's kind of like maximize that and and of course you know this is the debate this is this this was the problem and of course enki's faction lost that 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 struggle and i i think now uh we as a civilization have to get used to the idea it's not just that the extraterrestrials are back. It's not just that extraterrestrials are going to be revealed. It's not just that inner Earth civilizations are going to be revealed. These giants, that they are also part of our history and that they are going to be revealed. And and anyone that thinks that they're all good or all evil, I think they're missing they're missing the big picture that you're going to have gradations and you've got to be discerning. And, and those that are good and benevolent, let's work with them. Right. That's a really good point, Michael, because if we don't know our ancient history, we don't really know who we are. And, and these the suppressed human origins is also the suppressed giants in our past. And this is certainly a field in exopolitics that we really have to come to understand. And the future is still being uh, defined how and what these giants are going to play and yeah, let's hope there's good ones and we can work with them and let them know that we have advanced uh, intellect now and uh, we're not afraid of the big bad giants anymore and we don't have to demonize them or fight them. And 
hopefully we can come to a common ground and and peacefully work out a, a future that we can all coexist. Definitely agree with you there. So, so Brad, where do people go to uh, learn more about your work and uh, the the Esoterica book series? Yeah, the best place to go is cccpublishing.com. And that's where you can pick up a copy of Beyond Esoteric and get it signed by me. It's the only place that I get signed copies going out. If you want to know about me and other projects I'm working on and my conference schedule, that's uh, bradolson.com, B-R-A-D-O-L-S-E-N.com. And uh, we all uh, occasionally get a chance to meet up at some of these conferences, Michael. I always am uh, glad to see when you're on the ticket, but I know you're quite busy with the webinars and I'd be happy to uh, join the next one discussing the Giants. Uh, count me in. Okay, well, I definitely look forward to, um, uh, to talking to you again and uh getting more learning more about your your work and uh, thank you for your background and filling us in on this whole topic of giants it is a kind of mystery for many of us but you've been working on this for for many many years so i'm very uh, grateful for for the, your kind of knowledge and sharing that with us in this webinar so or in this interview so thank you brad oh my pleasure michael always great to talk with you and uh i think we covered some pretty important ground here today and hope your uh, listeners would appreciate that as well. You have been listening to Exopolitics today with Dr. Michael Sala. Please remember to like, share, and subscribe to this channel. Join or start a conversation in the comments. Take the time to explore the vast library of best-selling books, webinars, and podcasts by Dr. Sala. Visit exopoliticstoday.com. Thank you.